breaking news from The Athletic. Hi, this is Lindsay Jones from The Athletic Football Show. Before we get to our regularly scheduled episode, we're here with some breaking news. It is 1 a.m. Eastern, early Thursday morning, and the Jacksonville Jaguars have just fired head coach Urban Meyer. It's been a tumultuous tenure for Urban Meyer. In Has it been 10 years, Lindsay? <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't think it's sorry, even I been interrupt 10... you in the lead in, but yeah, it feels like 10 I don't years. think it's I don't think it's even been 10 months, but here to join me to talk about this tonight for just a few minutes is my colleague at The Athletic, Mike Sando. Mike, what was your reaction when you saw this news um, after midnight Eastern time that Urban Meyer had been fired? You know, it's kind of a relief. I, I just, I really actually just think from a human level of the people in that building. I mean, this isn't a case of, you know, an allegation or two. This guy's obviously got problems in dealing with people and creates a very hostile environment. And so there's a lot of people there that, um, you know, have a lot on the line this season uh, in their careers and their jobs and their in their lives. And so I just can only imagine for them, it's got to be a great night. I mean, just the relief of that, of not having a boss like that who does the things that we've heard about, seen. And I can tell you, before this even happened, I mean, everyone you talk to about Urban Meyer has a story about the time he wasn't respectful to him or that type of thing. I, I got five of them which off the top of my head. Yeah. So just to recap, um, you know, this news came very late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, depending on which time zone that you're in. And it came a couple hours after the Tampa Bay Times reported that uh, reported a story in which Josh Lambeau, who's the former kicker in Jacksonville, accused Urban Meyer of kicking him. Um, and so obviously, there's a whole lot of jokes all over the internet about, you know, kicking the kicker. And this was kind of the final straw there. And that's ultimately what what did him in. But it's true because there were story after story after story, mistake after mistake after mistake, dating back to his hiring, the time that, you know, back in January when he was first putting his staff together and he hired Chris Doyle, the disgraced strength coach from Iowa, um, who never should have been hired. You know, he had right. left Iowa um, and been been accused of, you know, a lot of racist activity and stuff where he was there. So I mean, the, dating back to the very minute that he was hired this there was kind of just a dark cloud and a lot of missteps along the way about the only thing that went right or that they did right during the urban Meyer um, tenure to use that word again was drafting Trevor Lawrence and you know to me it was it got to this point where every single day that urban Meyer reminded the head coach of that team was a setback for Trevor Lawrence. And if you're thinking about what is best for this organization and this franchise, if you're Shad Khan, you have to be thinking what is best for Trevor Lawrence. This is the guy that we have to be building around, that we have to be supporting and propping up. And every day that you had Urban Meyer still in charge there was was a yeah. failure. And I'm sure it was difficult for Shad Khan to admit this, I think he used the word bitterly disappointed in the statement that he put out late Wednesday night. Um, because this is this is a this is embarrassing. It's an embarrassment for him, for that city, for that organization. And yeah. you know, he it was just a spectacular failure. How about this though? The 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 Josh Lambeau thing was from August. And the yeah. team knew about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's something that, you know, back in August, they were still full gung-ho behind Urban Meyer. They hadn't lost any games yet. They were still seeing, we're going to let this guy build a program and do it his way. And it's something that you can maybe overlook because it's 
you know, it was so, so it's only that it got out and yes. caused it to be an uncomfortable, untenable situation. Absolutely. And it, and it, this story, the Lambeau story, came out several days after the NFL Network report about Urban yeah. Meyer berating his assistants, calling them losers, asking them to defend their resumes. Um, the, that report also included um, details about a fight with Marvin Jones Jr., uh, the yeah. wide receiver, who's one of the most like kind of mild-mannered, good dude wide receivers kind of of his generation of NFL players. And, you know, and that came on top of, you know, grossly mismanaging the running back situation, seeming to be fairly clueless about how to handle his roster and um, just mistake after mistake after mistake. And then there's the fact that, look, they've only won two games. They're two and 11. They have not been competitive in games for a very long time, really since they beat the Bills. I mean, that was kind of one of the most surprising what the hell just happened moments of the NFL season. But, you know, you can you can put up with a lot of stuff yeah. if you're winning and owners will overlook a lot of things if your team is good and going in the right direction and winning a lot of games. But that was not happening in Jacksonville. And the fact that, you know, the statement that Shad Khan put out back in October after the bar debacle in Columbus when Urban Meyer didn't fly back with his team and he stayed in Ohio and was captured on video, you know, in a bar with a young woman who was not his wife and all of that stuff. Urban, uh, Shad Khan at that moment said, Urban Meyer needs to earn our trust back. That was a pretty strong statement at that yeah. point. And it it's was a clear warning. that yeah. he's that he's done nothing in the months since. And Shad Khan really had no more no more choice that yeah. he he had to do this now. They, they need credibility now. So they they you know, if you go back ten years, they hired Mike Malarkey. That did that was one done, one season. And then they went with uh Gus Bradley, who uh, you know, a great guy to deal with and a and a good coach, but he didn't really have skins on the wall, wasn't proven. And then they kind of went the my way or the highway route with with Tom Coughlin coming in. Remember, that was a bad situation, too. Uh, and now you have another my way or the highway. They need someone who's credible, established. I mean, I, you know, somebody like a Jim Caldwell comes to yeah. mind to me, who's just a complete professional, comes in, knows exactly what he's doing. Because when you don't have a great organization, you don't have a, an owner who knows what he's doing, which is clearly the case there. You're overly dependent on the people you have in the building. So if you hire somebody like Urban Meyer, you're going to be him. That's what you're going to be yeah. because it's not like there's someone else there to guide or be over him. There's not an established culture. You become the culture of whoever you hire. And so it's very important that you get somebody who who knows what you're doing, is competent, and can help your young quarterback. So somebody like that to me would be uh, would be ideal for them. And to be clear, so now the the Jaguars are, along with the Raiders, teams that are looking for a head coach, they are allowed to interview candidates now who are not currently employed by another team. And owners this week at their owners meetings in Dallas um, passed a resolution that will um, open up the interview process by two weeks. So now coaches or general managers who are employed by other teams can start interviewing, um, I guess, now it'll be late December, early January, the final two weeks of the regular yeah. season, which will speed up the process a little bit. But they got to get started now because they're not the only team that's looking for a head coach. And as you said, they have some very specific things in, that they should be looking for. Um, Jim Caldwell is 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 a great name there, but there's a lot of other guys I think that would would be intriguing there. But Jim Caldwell probably should be their first. Yeah, call. He should, yeah just somebody like that to me who's who's established. Uh, I think I'm also. I want to watch these last few games to see if j- just removing this dark cloud from yeah. over the team, what does that do? Does it look better? Does it not? Do they get a one game bump and then clearly, you know, 
there's the problems went way deeper. If it finishes, well, the roster. Strong. I mean, the roster talent is still lacking. Yeah. At, at most positions there, uh, you know, that was something that we knew going into the season that it was going to be, you know, a fairly long rebuild because they didn't have a ton of talent there. Um, so so a lot of those issues still remain. But look, Daryl Bevel is going to be the interim head coach. Yeah. He was the interim coach in Detroit last year. He's been an NFL assistant coach for a long time. He kind of knows this drill. Yeah, I think he's good. I mean, he, he had success with Russell Wilson early in his career, young quarterback. He's a you know he's he's not going to be a, a jerk to a bunch of people. You know he's a, he's a good dude. People will like being around him. I think that's a he's got the he's got a really easy job here because <laughs> he's not Urban Meyer. <laughs> people are going to like coming exactly. to work again. I think in Jacksonville. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us here um, for this little bonus intro to the athletic football show. Um, Robert and Nate will be back on the Friday show with plenty of more reaction and make sure you guys are reading all of our news and analysis at The Athletic. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome to The Athletic Football Show. Today is Thursday, December 16th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today my good friend, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Robert. It has been a wild, really busy, news-filled day in the NFL. A little bit later on the show, one of our Niners writers, David Lombardi, is going to be joining us for this week's team visit. Really enjoyed our chat with him. And just so you guys know going into this, I had my booster last night. I am hurting very bad. So if I just start trailing off or fall asleep at this desk... That is the reason, and I just wanted to preface that before we dug into the show today. Well, I am here to carry the load. I have had my booster. I am ready to go. I've got all the antibodies. Let's go. I sincerely appreciate that. All right. So let's start with, obviously, the biggest story in the NFL over the last 24 hours or so. The last few days is that the return of so many COVID cases. More than 80 players have been added to the COVID list over the last three days, the highest number we've seen since really this started, right? I mean, the rash of cases that we've seen and how many guys have gone on that list, it almost feels unprecedented even when you consider last year. Yeah, I mean, we're it's gone back basically every day this week where there's been a large chunk of new positives. It was Monday. It was the highest day that we've seen. And um, Monday was 36 players. There were there was one other who was after the deadline, so they couldn't quite get to 37, but that was the highest single single number of positive cases that we've seen at any point in the pandemic. The big difference, of course, right now is that most of those people who have tested positive, the overwhelming majority are vaccinated, um, asymptomatic, and at worst, very mild symptoms. But that has led to a lot of really big questions that the NFL and the NFLPA are grappling with right now about what do you do now when you have this highly vaccinated population yeah. and there are these outbreaks that are going on? Um, the big difference, too, that we're seeing right now as opposed to earlier this season, and that tracks more with what we saw about this time last year, is that the NFL is seeing spread within facilities. Um, there are These could be considered actual outbreaks where you're seeing you know, double digit cases in multiple teams, the teams that are most impacted right now, this is this is something that's going on around the league. Um, Coast to coast, this is not necessarily regional, there are some teams who have not been impacted at all, but the majority have 
you know, have little pockets right here. But we have the Los Angeles Rams, who I believe are up to 16 um, new positive cases right now, including some really big names. Jalen Ramsey, who was ruled out five hours before kickoff of the Monday night football game, and Odell Beckham, who tested positive Tuesday morning, you know, really just hours after returning home to LA after playing in that game in Arizona. We've got the Washington football team that is um, well up into the double digits right now. I think they're 18 is at the latest count of positive cases. That includes Jonathan Allen um, and Kyle Allen, who is notable because he had to come in and play quarterback last week and Taylor Heineke was yeah. able to finish that game. So they've got issues there at a very important position. Um, and then the Cleveland Browns, who once again are kind of at the center of a COVID firestorm. This happened last year where they had multiple kind of outbreaks where they have, I believe it's 19 people and it's the laundry list of who's who. It's Baker Mayfield, Wyatt Teller, Jarvis Landry, and Kevin Stefanski, who... Again. Again. So, and this is pretty wild in one of these things that ha should be setting off alarm bells all over the place about what is this virus doing right now? Because Kevin Stefanski, we said again, he had COVID last January, missed coaching in the wild card round of the playoffs because of um, a positive COVID case. Um, he is fully vaccinated and he has received a booster shot. So a lot of questions going on about where the NFL is at right now. Um, and Dr. Alan Sills, Roger Goodell, they've they've spoken at the media uh, to the media Wednesday afternoon, literally as we are recording this. There are there's a session of owners meetings going on in Dallas right now where they're really trying to figure out exactly what to do and what sort of protocol changes they can make. What is what are those? Because I saw that J.C. Treader, who's the president of the NFLPA, tweeted today that they want more testing. They want daily testing yeah. as a way to kind of catch this before that stuff starts to spiral out of control. So what are the possible solutions to this and how bad could it get? I mean, outside of different protocols and testing, is there any chance we get to a place where we were last year where that one of these games gets postponed? Yeah. I mean, as of right now, no games have been postponed. There haven't been really significant discussions about moving any games. And what's interesting to me about that is that this summer, basically when they agreed to kind of the the new protocols, the the different levels of, you know, I guess we call the in, the incentives and the different rules for vaccinated versus unvaccinated players. One of the key things that they said was that if um, they would not move games because of outbreaks if it was because of unvaccinated individuals. Yep. And that could lead to forfeit situations where nobody got paid. But they did say that if there were, you know, outbreaks or issues with teams that were severely impacting the availability of the games to be played in a competitive manner because of um, positive players or positive tests from people who were vaccinated, that they would consider some options there that they would consider Does the flexibility. Does the Brown situation not hit that threshold? And that, that's what I'm not sure about. I mean, look, they it hasn't wiped out an entire position group, right? I mean, they have like last year. quarterbacks. They have, you know, it's hit multiple offensive linemen. Wyatt Teller and Jed Willis are both on the list, but they have another quarterback. They have more offensive linemen. They have additional wide receivers. So it's not like the Denver Broncos situation last year where they're going to walk into a game with literally without a quarterback. But you could argue that this is it is a competitive issue and it's hurting a team's chances that are you know very squarely in the playoff hunt right now. So Absolutely but is. it doesn't sound like they're going to make any effort to move that game. And that's a Saturday game against the Raiders in Cleveland. Like I get that there are broadcast rights and a lot of money that go into these, you know, standalone games that are, you know, played on a Saturday this time of year, but 
you know, couldn't you move it to Sunday? Just do just do one one day's worth. Um, but so as of right now, as we're recording this at you know five thirty Eastern time on Wednesday afternoon, um, Roger Goodell is actively speaking to the media as we as we are recording. They are not planning to move any games right now, but they're all of this stuff is still really in flux. They're trying to figure out what the modifications to the protocols are. This all has to be negotiated with the Players Association. And as you mentioned, they're kind of not in agreement on this. Um, J.C. Treader, the center from the Cleveland Browns, whose team, like we talked about, the center of all of this right now, he has been pushing for daily testing going back to July. I mean, this is something that has been an NFLPA position all along. They've wanted it in training camp. They wanted it at the start of the regular season. Um, and that position has not changed. And actually, when the PA kind of tweeted out their call for daily testing, they actually directly reference back to the letter that J.C. Treader wrote in September. They didn't put out a new letter or a new statement or anything like that. They're they're just saying- What was was the argument against it? Why why wasn't the league interested in doing daily testing? It was just a cost issue, a logistics issue. I mean, why wouldn't you want that if the players were asking for it? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to one of their kind of central tenets along the way has has been that testing is what is just kind of a a minor part of this, that it's the protocols that actually prevent cases and prevent or positive cases and prevent transmission. And they can be a lot more effective of, um, they can effectively stop the, the virus from entering the buildings and then from spreading if they make the protocols correct. You could certainly argue right now that the protocols aren't working if we're seeing the highest numbers of positive cases that we've seen at any point. But so now what they're doing, I, I think it's much more likely that we're going to see um, we may see a lot more teams go under the enhanced protocols, which they were under a, at a lot of points last year, where that's mandatory masking for everybody, virtual meetings, um, uh, limitations on what they're allowed to do outside of the building. No, you know, that would mean no charity events, no team holiday parties. A lot of these things that guys got vaccinated so that they could do this stuff, so that they could yeah. live a little bit more normal That we lives. all did. Right, exactly. And look, I think we're all probably dealing with this right now. You know, even those of us who have gotten our booster shots, like you and I um, both have in recent weeks. Um, but so th- those are things that they're figuring out right now, what exactly that is going to look like. Um one of the potential changes, the Washington Post reported this on Wednesday afternoon, but they have not um, gone ahead and made this change yet. I think because it will need um, it will need to be negotiated with the Players Association. Is that they're considering a way for vaccinated individuals who test positive and are asymptomatic to return sooner. Um, so that would be you know so that guys who are you know at lower risk of spreading the virus, who are not experiencing symptoms, they might not be out five, seven, 10 days. Maybe you could return with one positive test and asymptomatic or one negative test, excuse me, and as well as being asymptomatic. So that seems to be, to me, the thing that might be the biggest change coming is um, the enhanced protocols, increasing mask usage, trying to do the things to prevent transmission, especially if there's community spread. Then you add in a a quicker return to play policy for asymptomatic vaccinated people, and then you incentivize booster shots. Because right now, they're not mandating boosters for players. Um, That's something that they're discussing with the Players Association right now. But if you can encourage it, incentivize it, provide data that shows why it's necessary. Um, you know, Brandon McManus, who's the Broncos NFL uh, NFL PA rep, today talked about how he wanted to 
have players get antibody tests so that they could know if they needed a booster. That is already allowed. Players can get antibody tests if they want to, but clearly players need to know that that's available. And I think it would behoove the NFL to show them that data, show players and say, hey, here's how your antibody levels are dropping. If you want to keep yourself safe, you want to keep your teammates safe, your family safe, keep the season on track, go get your booster shot. We'll make accommodations. Um you know, for you to maybe have an off day after you get your boosters. Robert can attest to that it really freaking sucks after you get that shot sometimes. Um, so there's just a lot of things that are really still up in the air. And hopefully in the next com- next couple of days, we might have a little bit more clarity as these things get um, collectively bargained. Is there any sense of why the uptick in cases have happened? Is it as simple as the Omicron variant and just everything else that's happening around the world? Or is it any more complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple layers to it. Um, The Omicron variant is a big part of it. Dr. Alan Sills said this afternoon that they have seen in in multiple cities, multiple NFL cities, they've gotten um, the genomic testing has shown cases of the Omicron variant. And what we know from public health officials at this point is that Omicron is um, very highly contagious, um, more contagious than the previous variants, including Delta, but um, tends to be much more mild. So they're they're getting a lot more cases, um, but that are a lot more a, a lot more mild. So if you have a variant that is a lot more contagious, it's going to evade. You know, if if vaccinated people aren't wearing masks in the building, which they're not, yeah. because that's one of the protocols. So that's why when we talk about testing versus protocols, it seems like the protocols are going to get ramped up before the testing does just to say this is happening in our communities. I think, you know, I think all of us, no matter where you're living in the country, you're kind of seeing this right now. More kids are getting sick, quarantines at schools, all of these sorts of things. We kind of know that this is out there. And as we're getting to the holidays and much more time inside and people gathering and traveling, um, that this is still here and it's not going away. And um, yeah, so I think that that's probably the biggest thing is that they are now seeing that the Omicron variant is coming into the NFL. And it is worth pointing out, I think that this is not just an NFL issue. This is happening across professional sports right now. The NHL is in its own its own mess. The NBA. I was supposed to go to the Bulls game last night and it right. was postponed. Yeah, I mean, so I the mean, NBA just, is having issues. Um, the NHL is going in basically into enhanced protocols for the rest of 2021 um, to try to keep their games on track. And in the NFL, unlike those sports, at least they do have these massive rosters and these big practice squads and they have enough players that they can kind of keep these games on track and they haven't had to cancel or move anything. I do just feel bad for everybody who's, you know, either plays for the Cleveland Browns or is going to be watching that game on Saturday where a whole lot of the the star players that you want to see from Cleveland aren't going to be able to play as they try to make the playoffs. Yeah. Any other news items that came out of those meetings this week that you feel like are worth talking about before we keep moving on? Sure. I mean, just a couple of things. We don't need to get super deep into it, but they've already set the salary cap for 2022. It's going to be set at $208 million, which is about a $26 million increase from over 2021 and basically back to where we thought it was always going to be in 2022. So really what that tells us is that the pandemic losses was kind of one big hit. We took a big hit to the salary cap in 2021. And what's interesting kind of as a side to that to me is that back in 2020, in the summer of 2020, when they were, when the PA and the league were arguing over what this year was going to look like with the salary cap, all the restrictions, the league wanted to spread out the losses over a very long time and basically suppress the salary cap for a number of years. And the players union said, we'll take a big one year hit and we're confident that it's going to come back. And they did take the hit this year and it was hard for a lot of players, but next year's group of free agents, 
they're going to get paid in ways that the 2021 group wasn't because the cap is going to rally. And then we expect that in 2023, it could take a pretty massive jump because of the influx of TV money. So that's one big thing of news. And then I would say the other kind of notable item to come out of the owners meetings is that they are, um, they're going to make some changes to the hiring hiring calendar to help um, increase the, the the number of diverse candidates uh, for coaching, coaching jobs and general managers. And now interviews for those positions will be able to happen in the final two weeks of the regular season instead of waiting until the start of the season. There's a lot of elements that are going to go along to that. We don't need to get into all those now, but that is a pretty significant change that, you know, especially, Absolutely. so especially if you're, you know, say Byron Leftwich, and you might be a candidate for a head coaching job right now, and your team is going to make a deep run into the playoffs, you could interview for jobs during week 18. And you're not going to have to wait until your bye week or um, until your team is eliminated or after the Super Bowl to interview for jobs. By the way, guy like Kyler Murray, be very, very happy when that 2023 cap just absolutely explodes. (laughs) Some of these quarterback contracts that get handed out starting that year are going to be absolutely wild. (laughs) Speaking of the Cardinals, Pretty big news. DeAndre Hopkins out for the rest of the regular season per Adam Schefter and ESPN. He hurt his knee late in the game against the Rams. It's just a really unfortunate break for an Arizona team that had the same thing happen last year, right? Where their season seems so promising. And then as we get to the tail end, kind of goes off the rails with injuries. He's such a huge part of what they do offensively. I mean, that connection that he has with Kyler Murray and just what they have together, it drives their passing game. And not having that is a pretty significant pivot that they're going to have to make, even if they get him back for the playoffs. I mean, this is a team still fighting for the number one seed in the NFC. It's a pretty devastating loss. Yeah, I I was at that Monday night game and you noticed when he went out. um, And one of the unfortunate things, I think, for the Cardinals is that they've just never had their entire group healthy together the way that they've designed it. You know, Kyler Murray missed a stretch of games. DeAndre Hopkins has already missed a stretch of games. Um, You know, and then they got Zach Ertz right about the same time as those guys went out. And then Chase Edmonds has been hurt. Now they're just about to get Chase Edmonds back at the time that they lose DeAndre Hopkins. So this is a big challenge for Cliff Kingsbury. And, you know, the Cardinals are facing a pretty, you know, kind of a tough road now. I, I, I think they can still win that division. They're clearly the favorite to win that division, but it gets exponentially harder after losing to the Rams and now losing their best, uh, their best skill position player. Ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive. All right. Let's move on. We're going to stick with another staying alive segment. If you guys have listened for the last couple of weeks, we're picking a team that somehow, some way, is still alive in the playoff picture, which is unlike any playoff scenario, any playoff outlook that I have dealt with since I was covering the NFL. And we're going to talk about a team that you know extremely well, and that is the seven and six Denver Broncos, a team that is very much alive here. There are five, seven, and six teams in the AFC. The Broncos are one of them. And I think that they're in the 10 spot right now. There are tiebreaker situations, which I am not even going to start looking at. Have them there compared to where the Bengals are, where the Browns are where the Colts are and where who's the last one bills and where the bills are. So they're a little bit further down, but they're right in the mix. So just, let's just start off by asking how could the Broncos make the playoffs? How could they be one of the teams that somehow emerges from that glut to steal the seven seed in the AFC? Well, it starts this weekend. They are playing the Cincinnati Bengals. So Ooh boy. they have a schedule that would allow them to make up 
a ton of ground in the conference. In a good and bad way. Yes. They're playing so, a lot of good teams. So we're going to spoiler alert here. The reasons that they could make the playoffs are basically the same reason that they won't make the playoffs. <laughs> it's because of who they play and you know how they play. So when you look at their upcoming schedule, it starts with the Bengals at home this week. Um, I am going to go to that game, which probably means the Broncos are going to play really poorly because they only play poorly at the games that I'm at. <laughs> um, I was at the Raiders game and the Ravens game earlier this year. But They've got huge, huge, huge games that they also play the Raiders who are, you know, have slipped out of contention, but they've already lost to the Raiders this year when we're talking division record, conference record as potential tiebreakers. Um, so they've got the Raiders on the road and then they've got uh, their last two weeks against the Chargers and the Chiefs. So they've played the Chiefs at the end of the season before where the Chiefs have had nothing to play for. I think the Chiefs are going to have a lot to play for when we're talking about week 18. So really, really, really big games coming up where, you know, the people who don't believe in the Broncos, and I think there's a lot of people out there, um, that could change. If you if you go ahead and beat, you know, you go three and one over the last month of the season, I think that, that puts them in a really good position to get in. If you were making the argument for the Broncos, I think it would start with the fact that they've been sixth in defensive EPA per play over the last six weeks. Their defense is playing well. And it's really interesting. I mean, some of the tweaks that they've made, as the rest of the league has played less man coverage, the Broncos have played more. I mean, this is a team that, in a lot of ways, kind of ushered in the style of defense a lot of teams around the NFL are playing and that Fangio way of approaching things. The only team that's played man coverage on a higher percent of their snaps this year than the Broncos is the Dolphins. And so on a lot of early down snaps, they've leaned into a lot more man and cover one than you might expect from them. They still lead the league in cover six snaps, which is cover two on one side, cover four on the other. It's like a Fangio staple. So just the mix of coverages they're playing are, it's new. It's a new kind of version of what we've seen Vic Fangio do. And I think it's been an effective curveball for them, especially over the last month and a half here. And their offense is pretty good. Like it's a really solid group. I, if you had told me that this Broncos offense would be 10th in weighted offensive DVOA through 14 weeks. I I would have thought that they were a potential contender because of how good I thought their defense was going to be. Teddy Bridgewater has played well. You know, the offensive line, they've gotten really good results out of all of those guys. I think that Quinn Miners has been really fun, just dropped in there because of injury. You know, the job that Mike Munchak has done, obviously they have receiving talent. We talked about the running backs on Sunday. It's just kind of a weird team. Like, I don't know what to make of them because they're playing pretty well, but it also feels like some pretty huge changes are on the horizon. So as you look at it, I guess this is the question we have to ask about all these teams. Do you think the Broncos actually want to make the playoffs? Like, is making the playoffs a good thing for the Denver Broncos organization moving forward? Because I don't know if it is. Yeah, I mean, so I think the answer to that question depends on do they want Vic Fangio to keep his job and do you. That's so exactly if you're the it. fan base or if you're the guys inside the building, if you're George Payton, who's going to get ultimately going to be the guy who gets to make that decision with, you know, he'll have some input from John Elway and um, other people in that building. But that's that's the question. Do you like the direction of this team? Do you think that Vic Fangio deserves another shot at this, another draft class? Do you like what he's built on the defense, the way that these young players have developed? Or do you want to blow blow this whole thing up because there have been signs along the way that George Payton is really has an eye for the future. The Von Miller trade was the biggest piece of that where you you knew that he was looking toward the future. The quarterback thing is always going to be hanging over this team. And if well, you, they don't have to mutually exclusive, right? 
you could theoretically bring back this coaching staff that has, I think, done a good job this year and is full of like NFL coaches, right? Yeah, like Vic it's Fangio Pat is a great defensive coach. Mike Pat Shermer is a solid offensive coordinator. Mike Shula is a, has been around for a very long time. You know, Mike Munchak is the best, one of the best offensive line coaches in the league, if not the best. I mean, it is a professional coaching staff. And if you say, all right, we're close. The one thing that could, could take us over the top if we keep this group intact is the right quarterback. I could understand that argument, but if you, I didn't think this was going to be the outcome coming into the season with the moves that they were making and just kind of the feeling I had and just little snippets of conversations here and there, it felt like the Peyton move was made with a potential new start in mind for next year. You maybe go move, make a move for a quarterback while also bringing in a new, maybe offensive centric staff and moving on from whatever this era was. But if they somehow get in, I think you could still do that, but it becomes a little bit more complicated. Yeah, so there's there's a couple interesting arguments there where you look at both ways. Okay, so they let's say they win three out of these last four games and they get into the playoffs. Maybe they sneak in a wild card win. Who knows? With Teddy Bridgewater, do you bail on Teddy Bridgewater then? If he leads you to wins against the Bengals, the Chargers, and the Chiefs, or all three of the AFC West games teams, if they let's say they lose to the Bengals. Um does getting to the playoffs make you that much more tied to keeping Teddy Bridgewater, wanting him to be your guy? Um, and then also, like, I'm just kind of curious where what this quarterback landscape is going to look like this offseason, because I think the Broncos have already played themselves out of position for a top draft pick, right, where they would be able to get whoever the top guy in the draft is. And I don't I do not like this quarterback draft class. You know, I'm, I haven't studied them extensively, but this does feel like a very bad year to be picking at the top of the draft if you want to get a quarterback. And and the Broncos do have ammunition that they could move up the Von Miller trade, um, picking up an extra second and third could really help them package picks together and move up. I think what feels more likely is that it gives them more potential draft capital to trade to get a veteran. Would making a run to the playoffs and potentially run in the playoffs, would that make you more attractive to one of these the guys? Of like you you have a better pitch now for Russell Wilson. Hey, look at our offensive line. You know, look at how few sacks they're giving up lately. Look at Cortland Sutton and Tim Patrick, who we just re-signed, and these running backs and Javante Williams. And doesn't Javante Williams look just like Marshawn Lynch? Don't you want to look at this defense? <laughs> Don't they remind you of the Legion of Boom? Come on, come on over and look at these picks that we have. And they might ha- not have the quite the amount to offer that, say, like the New York Giants might have in terms of like first round draft picks, but they do have stuff that they could put together. But it's it's a really complicated kind of kind of situation. I will say as somebody who lives in Denver, it's been a really long playoff drought here for Broncos fans. And I know there's fans in other cities who will say, say they won the Super Bowl six years ago. in 2015. So nobody nobody feels bad for you. But the Broncos are one of those teams and one of those fan bases who tries to live by a different standard that uh, you know, the playoffs are the expectation every year. So it's been a while and I think it would mean a lot um, for them to get into the playoffs. Um, So I don't know. I still think it's always better to get into the playoffs as opposed to making it because you're not going to be one of the worst teams, but it does make all of those other decisions, coaching and quarterback, especially that much more complicated if you get in. I'd be willing to hear the arguments on both sides because I do think that this one's kind of a toss up. So the last question that we ask here, we always hear about potential spoiler teams. You don't want to play them right now. Do you really not want to play the Broncos right now? I mean, I think there's 
there's things about them that make them kind of really scary and really dangerous. I totally agree. I mean, their defense is legitimately good. Um, they they can do a lot of different things to you. Vic Fangio has shown us multiple times this season that if it's like kind of a one game, you want one coordinator to draw up like a kick-ass defensive game plan, I'd put Vic Fangio up there with probably Fangio and Bill Belichick is like one and or Bill, Belichick one, Fangio two is like one game game plan defensive coordinators where he could mess you up real bad on offense. And I mean, just ask the Chargers over the last couple of years what he's done. Ask McCarthy what the Broncos did to that that offense a couple of weeks ago. So that makes them pretty scary. And then they've just figured out what their winning formula is. And that's running the ball a lot. They've got two running backs who are really, really good. I know you guys talked about it the other night, but both Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon could be thousand yard rushers this season. Yes, it helps that there's 18 games or 17 games, but that's pretty, that's still really substantial. Um, they run hard, they play hard. They're surprisingly aggressive. They've been really good on fourth down, um, pretty good on third down. Um, so I think they're scary, but the one thing that makes me maybe not as scared about them is that they've just been so inconsistent. That's and the thing. They've lost but I also think that's what makes them scary. Already, right? That that Chargers game is it gives you some pause if you're an opponent of theirs. But then there are also performances where it's like, oh man, this team is not has no teeth at all. I yeah, they can't. The there's there's games where they this. just can't score points. I mean, you watched yes. that Sunday night game against the Chiefs the other day, and you came away being like, oh, there's there's some defensive things going on that are that are really nice. But when you can only score nine points, it's like, is anybody scared of a team that a lot of times is only scoring, you know, nine points, 13 points, you know, their their high output offensive games have been a lot fewer. They scored a lot of points against the Lions last week. If all of a sudden they start scoring 24 plus over the last four months, maybe I'll be a little bit more scared of them. I think that's totally fair. I wanted to just talk one more thing about the Broncos before we close. I know that you and Nate talked about Demarius Thomas and his death on on the Sunday show, uh, but this is the first time that I've been on since that happened. And, you know, I I did have a pretty extensive relationship with Demarius Thomas, and I was really moved by what we saw in the stadium on Sunday and um, really all the yeah. tributes that have that have come out since then. And it's been a really tough week. In Denver, and you know, we talk about the playoffs and what's going to happen, and you know, do they have maybe this extra, like, purpose now? I mean, they were clearly motivated against the Lions. I don't know if that's something that carries over necessarily. There are guys in that locker room that knew him, though, and, right? And I mean, we're very close to him. him. Oh, yeah, very, yeah. very close. And I think one of the most telling things it wasn't just that Justin Simmons, you know, was really emotional about this. Kareem Jackson, who de- who didn't play with him in Denver, but pl- they were teammates in Houston. They were the same age, same draft class, knew each other as um, kind of teenagers, kind of in the the camp circuit and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of guys there that did know him personally. The the young receivers, Cortland Sutton, was kind of mentored by him, and it was really Cortland Sutton's arrival that made John Elway comfortable trading Demarius Thomas away back in 2018. Tim Patrick, who was on the practice squad and really Demarius kind of took him under his wing. But it was it wasn't just those players. It was um the fans and it was certainly everybody who worked for that organization. It was the people who worked in the, you know, community service, who worked in the cafeteria, who worked uh for the team website. Um and then I think when you looked at like the Denver Media Core too, and I'm certainly I consider myself part of that. I think you kind of universally heard that like you don't want to play favorites, right? Like you never say like, oh, I have a favorite player or whatever. But Demarius Thomas was everybody's favorite player because of the way that Why? he – It was because of the way that he treated everybody 
with humanity and respect and care about who you were as a person. And he had this just like joyful, youthful enthusiasm about him. And, you know, I, one of the things that I always most appreciated uh, about him was that he, well, he, he never would say no to an interview, which was, you know, I always appreciated that. Right. But he was always thoughtful about it. It wasn't like if you asked him a question, he would just kind of, you know, shoot off some answer, some cliche, didn't care about it. You could tell that it mattered to him. And he always wanted to say the right thing because he wasn't a rah-rah kind of guy. He wasn't a boastful guy. He was so extremely humble, but he cared about what he said when he spoke. It mattered. And I always just, you know, really respected him um, and liked him you know, it, it, our, our, we had a really good professional relationship dating back to, you know, I went out to his hometown in the summer of 2010, right after he was drafted. I spent time um, with him at his home and with his father. I went and I met his mother and his grandmother and was really, really honored that he trusted me at that point when he didn't know me at all. I mean, yeah. he had just been drafted to kind of open up and tell tell his story and his family's story. And, um, you know, that was over the course of 10 years, really. And um, so it's just, it's been a really big loss. I've been really sad. Um, I know people around Denver have been really sad. And um, it's just, it's just really unfortunate that we're never going to get to see kind of more what was next for him, kind of this next chapter of his life. And I also think it's just really unfortunate that it was such an emotional day at the stadium the other day, just the outpouring of love. I mean, you've probably seen the clip of fans chanting DT, DT, DT. He never really got to have that kind of moment where he was like truly appreciated there. I think he's one of the most underappreciated Broncos ever. And he's definitely going to be in the ring of fame. I think they need to do it next year. You don't need to wait four more years, do it next year um, and bring his family and let them kind of feel how much everybody here um, in, in Denver and kind of throughout the Rocky Mountain region really appreciated him. I really appreciate you saying that. I, I think that that is a really just good way to remember him. I, I, your insight on that is definitely something I wanted to hear. So thank you. All right. We're going to kind of cram a couple of the segments here at the end together because I'm not feeling so great. <laughs> and I think that it helps that this week's appointment viewing and selling us on Thursday Night Football are pretty much the same thing. We get Chiefs Chargers on a national stage in front of the entire country. It's a massive game. So sell me on your appointment viewing. Okay, look, if I have to sell you on watching this Thursday night football game between the Chiefs and the Chargers. I don't know how you've made it far, this far in the podcast already because, <laughs> look, you're all sickos that you're watching every game. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably watching every game. And this is a game that even the most casual NFL fan would be seeking out Amazon Prime to watch because this is as good as it gets. The Chiefs and the Chargers play nothing but really entertaining, really competitive, um, really compelling games. I mean, there's so many matchups here. But, I mean, obviously the biggest one, right, is that it's – you know, the next great quarterback rivalry in the NFL. And it's happening in the same division where we've got Patrick Mahomes against Justin Herbert. And uh, that's it. That's enough, right? If you want to just watch those two guys, if you don't know anything else about the NFL. That's good for me. That's, that's totally it. Fine. So you get to watch that. So that's like, I mean, that's the big selling point. But this game also, it matters a ton. You know, the, the Chiefs have really taken control of the AFC West in recent weeks, but the Chargers are right there in this. And they could sweep the Chiefs, if they win this game, and that would be I mean, their, their offense is playing fantastic and losing Rayshon Slater hurts. Yes. But it does seem like even if there are some game time decisions with some other guys that they could be relatively healthy. If you need an indication of how much this game matters to me and how much I want to watch it, my mom was trying to get dinner with me tomorrow night and I was like, can't do it. Can't do it. Ma. She's been she's only in town for a little while. It's like, I'll see you on Christmas. I, we got to watch this football game. So that's how much I want to watch this game is that I blew off my own mother. 
Well, I, I'm going to be watching at a kindergarten Christmas party, <laughs> but that's the beauty of uh, <laughs> that's the beauty of the uh, mobile apps because I'll be able I'll be able to do a little both. I was going to blow off Santa Claus to watch. Um. <laughs> the thing that made my week, um, you guys know that I my daughter Lena is five years old. She records pics. Um, but uh, somebody who follows me on Twitter, a guy named Vance Williams, um, he tweeted me last week that he was going to put a parlay on all of Lena's picks because she did great uh, <laughs> the previous two weeks. And she didn't have an awesome week. Look, she, she's she been really good at picking upsets. There weren't a lot of upsets last week. But he came back and said that he was going to give $10 for every pick that she got right and donate it to a charity of Lena's choice. And so I picked her up from school. We talked about it. We talked about the holidays and you know what people need. And um, we picked the food bank of the Rockies and he came through man of his word with his donation. He That's said great. he's going to do it again this week. So in the spirit of Vance who made this really generous donation um, on behalf of my daughter's picks, go out and pick a charity this week. And, you know, whether it's $80, $5, $88 in honor of Demarius Thomas that was going around over the last few days, you know, just go out and do something good for this week, uh, this week for somebody else. Um, and that's it. That's all I have. Absolutely. It's that time of year. All right. It's time now for this week's team visit. I am thrilled to welcome one of our Niners writers at The Athletic, David Lombardi. David, your first time on the show. Thank you very, very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad that it currently isn't raining right now, so I'm able to step outside, give you guys a nice little view of the field here. But uh, it's fun to be on because you know how it is, right? This time of the season, there's nothing better than covering a contending football team in December. There's drama, and the 49ers have certainly supplied a lot of it, and it's going to be an exciting few weeks for them. So I wanted to just kind of take a step back and consider where this team is, not only in the pecking order, but just in the grand scheme of things. It's obviously been such a year of change, and I feel like the discourse around them has shifted and changed, and I just want to really consider all of that in this moment. So I want to start with the quarterback question. If I told you on August 1st of this year that in week 15, Jimmy Garoppolo would still be starting for the Niners. What would your response have been? Uh, of course. I, I don't think there was ever, ever any question as far as the 49ers plan. There was a lot of noise in the media, but Trey Lance had 318 career pass attempts yeah. at North Dakota State. That wasn't going to translate into starting during year one in the NFL unless Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt. And I don't like to predict injuries for players so uh, you know and Jimmy Garoppolo had put together a fully healthy 2019 season so um, I figured Garoppolo would be the starter for this 2021 year and that, that's what the 49ers hope and that's what they're getting and ever since that disastrous week eight game against Indianapolis he's been really good he's been really efficient and that's exactly what the 49ers have wanted and then they can consider what to do moving forward into next year after the season ends because they're working on Trey Lance behind the scenes right now he's on that scout team getting reps as a mobile quarterback one week, as a pocket passer the next. And it's just this big long-term plan, Garoppolo for 2021, and then maybe Lance for 2022. But I think the 49ers really right now are just in wait-and-see mode. They're going to cross every subsequent bridge when they get to it. They're not making any predetermined decisions. Based on the way Jimmy has played this year, and they've been a top-10 offense, You know, they've been explosive, they've been exciting. Do you think they're glad they made the Trey Lance move? Now that we have all this season for context and to kind of inform the decision, how do you think they feel about it? I still think that they feel the, the way they did before. They, the, the ultimate goal for 2021, they had two tracks, right? They had the short-term track and the long-term track. And as far as the short-term track, they wanted to bolster the quarterback position 
for this season when they have a contending roster because they had already seen two years just go down the drain uh, because of an injury to Jimmy Garoppolo in 18 and 20. So I think they feel great about the fact that they have insurance and Trey Lance behind Garoppolo for 2021. And then you have to start talking about finances and, uh, you know, big picture roster building when you're talking about the future. And Lance is on a rookie deal. So when there is a cap crunch before the cap explodes in 2023, and that's 2022, the 49ers will theoretically have uh, only a quarterback on a rookie deal. And they might even be able to recoup some trade value for Jimmy Garoppolo. So I think that this is going just as they had envisioned it. You know, it, it, it was always this narrative that Trey Lance would have to come in and beat out Jimmy Garoppolo uh, for this trade to be something that the 49ers didn't regret. They actually made the trade and made the draft pick, counting on Jimmy Garoppolo to be their quarterback in 2021, and then assuming that Trey Lance would probably take over in 2022. But again, th they haven't been operating with a predetermined narrative. They're going to wait and see and cross that bridge when they actually get to it. So when you look back through over the course of these last five games, that includes four wins, the loss at Seattle, which I'm not sure if we could pin that loss against the Seahawks um, on the offense. There were some, you know, some special teams miscues, some other things that went wrong in that game. What have you seen that's been working well for the offense, um, for Jimmy Garoppolo, for George Kittle? Um, what's maybe changed during this last five game stretch that's enabled the Niners to get right back in this playoff race? Well, uh, Brandon Ayuk's emergence after starting the season, just struggling. You know, he 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 suffered the hamstring strain during training camp, and it really impacted his confidence and his ability to get into the flow of the offense and his rapport with both of the 49ers quarterbacks. So Brandon Ayuk was a bit of a forgotten man at the start of the season. But starting in week eight, you could tell that that confidence and the rapport with the 49ers QB, with Garoppolo, was back. And that allowed the 49ers to diversify the pass attack. Remember the first few games of the season, Debo Samuel was getting over 80% of the targets. So they were really, <laughs> really reliant on just one player. Over the final drive, that epic drive in overtime at Cincinnati, Garoppolo went six for six. And those six completions went to four different receivers, including Brandon Ayuk. And Debo Samuel was not one of the, the, the four receivers that caught passes on that drive, which just goes to show you that this offense now it's a plethora of weapons. George Kittle caught 13 passes, 151 yards. I think he's now the first tight end in history to uh, have over 150 receiving yards and a, and a touchdown in two, two straight weeks. So um, all of that is uh, worth considering when you see the full picture of this 49ers offense. Uh, Garoppolo is now distributing the ball. The receivers are confident, and, and he's confident in all of them. And I think that just makes them so much harder to defend and so much more efficient. It feels like the pieces have fallen into place, right? With Kittle coming back healthy and the way that they can lean on him and Debo not missing that much time and what Ayuk does for them. Like all the guys have slotted into the roles you would hope they slotted into. What's going to hold them back? What elements of this offense do you think might keep them from competing with the upper, upper tier teams in the NFC? The right side of the offensive line and pass protection is a huge, huge issue. They lost Mike McGlinchey for the season to a torn quad, and he was actually delivering his first year of plus pass protection. Always had been a good run blocker, but he was he was blocking and pass protection for him this year. And now it, it's it's trouble, I'll tell you, because Tom Compton is actually run blocking really well. That's been very impressive, but he's you know I, I would say probably the worst pass protecting right tackle in the league. And they have a similar problem at right guard where Daniel Brunskill is a good run blocker, but the pass protection hasn't been great. So that, that side of the line is a sieve. 
the 49ers try to mask it by running, you know, as much as they can, <laughs> but you can't mask it the whole time. And it, it reared its ugly head in Seattle. Um, it reared its ugly head against Cincinnati. Garoppolo was sacked five times. And uh, you talk to Kyle Shanahan, he's actually happy that he took those sacks. He's actually happy that there was risk management there, that he wasn't trying to force a ball into an interception. But, you know, that those are efficiency killers uh, and, and you need to find a way to protect your quarterback. So th- that is something that should make 49ers fans really nervous is the right side of that offensive line. If there's anything that could like derail them, that's like I can specifically point out, it, it's that particularly right tackle. And it feels like that play, the safety with Carlos Dunlap just walking Compton back into Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be burned into your mind if you're concerned about this Niners team and what their ceiling is. At right guard, what's the Aaron Banks situation? Do you feel like his inability to kind of take that spot and where they drafted him is kind of a microcosm of just some of the little early season, early career hiccups they've had from highly drafted guys. It feels like this is kind of a theme with them over the last three or four years where preseason, maybe people from the outside say, all right, that makes sense. Maybe he'll slot into this role and then it doesn't materialize as quickly as some people think it will. Well, I mean, it it has been hit or miss as far as the higher round draft picks. It got off the disastrous start in 2017 when their two first round picks were Solomon Thomas and Ruben Foster. But uh, obviously, they've seen some success in, in the early rounds. Debo Samuel was a second-round pick. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Nick Bosa was picked at the top of the draft. Brandon Ayuk was picked near the top of the draft. And the jury is probably still out on Javon Kinlaw. Uh, I would say this, the Aaron Banks pick and, and really the short-term miss of that pick, I don't want to call it an all-out miss, but at least in the short term, it obviously has been a miss because this is a team that – was obviously circling the wagons, trying to go for a, a big run in 2021. And when that happens, and when your first-round pick is an exception, right? The first-round pick and Trey Lance, they were you know, really basing uh, future projections there. They, they knew that he wasn't going to be the guy in 2021. But you better get something in that circumstance out of your second-round pick because you're pushing so many chips through these one-year contracts and, and through fitting Garoppolo onto the roster into 2021 success. You, you better get something from... Uh, at least that second round pick. And that was Aaron Banks. And I do think that they miscalculated. I do think that they anticipated that Banks would be ready to start at some point this year, right guard. So this team's prospects would be a whole lot better right now had Banks been ready uh, because you'd have Brunskill and right tackle on Banks at right guard. And unfortunately, that hasn't come to fruition. So, you know, I don't think that their early round draft record has been as bad as some people make it out to be, but I, I would, I will say that this particular one with Aaron Banks hurt just because this team wants to be good now and they need, you know, I really do think they need one extra quality offensive lineman and he hasn't been that for them at least yet. What do you think is keeping him off the field? What do you, what, what areas well, do you feel like they're most concerned about? I think they're most concerned about the pass protection right now. Uh, I, I do think he's, he's lost a little weight. I mean, the, the big concern with him, Entering the NFL was that, oh boy, this guy, you know, I think he weighed like 338 pounds at the senior bowl. And I think they've actually been happy with the way that he's moved. I wrote a big feature on him about him being a a high school basketball star because of how well he moved at at that weight. He has the footwork and that's really impressive. And I think that's what sold the 49ers. They thought they could get this combination of, um, you know, size that could anchor because that's been a problem for their offensive line. It's a huge problem with Tom Compton, who's who's definitely a light offensive lineman. Brunskill right too at guard. I mean, you and, just yeah, see yeah. him. It, he just he doesn't have a big frame. Well, Brunskill was a tight end at San Diego State. So, I mean, yeah. this this whole line, you know, has is better at run blocking than pass blocking. And that goes even to Trent Williams, 
he's obviously Trent Williams, so it's fine with him <laughs> at left tackle. But uh, at, on the right side of that offensive line, uh, they, they, they need more beef to anchor because those edge rushers come in strong with a bull rush. And I think that Aaron Banks has the size that they like to be able to maybe develop that. But, but so far, he hasn't been able to, I guess, maybe to, to, to get used to, to, to the lighter weight and to anchor firmly in practice. Shanahan specifically has said it's the pass protection that, that so far is what's holding him back. I want to flip to the other side of the ball a little bit and uh, get your opinion on what's been going on with this Niners defense, because they've had a lot of injuries. You go all the way back to the Jason Verrett, really devastating injury back this, uh, I guess, right before the season started, another devastating injury for him. How have they been able to manage all of these injuries, especially in the secondary? And um, what are the what do you think of the job that D'Amico Ryans has done as coordinator there as he's replaced Robert Sala? Well, D'Amico Ryans is a rookie coordinator, and I think that's shown throughout the course of this season. And that's no knock on him. I just think that he's been improving game by game. His masterpiece was against Cincinnati and their explosive offense this past Sunday because the cornerback situation, which obviously started devolving in week one with the red injury that you talked about, it hit a red alarm on Sunday because Dante Johnson's mother had passed away. So he was away from the team. And they had to start Ambry Thomas, one of their rookies, who uh, quite frankly wasn't wasn't really ready to start. And D'Amico Ryans had to shield him in that game on Sunday. So the 49ers have been able to improve defensively over the course of the year, despite this you know really shaky situation of the secondary, uh, through some smoke and mirrors schematically, and through the fact that the defensive line, even though that's also been injured, obviously D Ford won't be available this year. So the defensive line isn't what it was in 2019, but they've been. They've been improving there. Even with that loss of Juwan Kinlaw on the inside, Chris Kacarek is one of the best defensive line coaches in the game, and he's found a way to get that unit to start to start firing. Uh, they've moved Eric Armstead inside to defensive tackle. DJ Jones should be talked about more. He's he's delivering one of the best seasons in the NFL for a defensive tackle. I mean, he, he's, he's going to make some money. He's one of my favorite yeah. guys to watch. He is such yeah. an epitome. He epitomizes like that the mindset that that team plays with in that position group. Like he is just like the ultimate Kasurik guy that rises because he's there. And he's never been healthy in December until this year. It's always yeah. been an issue, right? There's always been something. And this year he's showing, you know, because everybody's worn down. So so if you're healthy in December you could start working against some offensive linemen who are probably dinged up. And, and I think it's showing he's, he's overpowering. So I think you're spot on with that. I think he's, he really embodies what the 49ers want, but with, with, with DJ Jones, you know, commanding the middle, Eric Armstead next to him also now playing inside it, it's given the 49ers, uh, you know, a lot more flexibility at the edge, right? Cause you know, two guys getting it done in the middle. We all know what kind of year Nick Bills is having on the outside. But they also have Charles Amenahu. They picked up in a trade from the Texans. Sansom Ebucom just played his best game. So the, this defensive line is improving as the season goes, and that's helping them hide the secondary. And then D'Amico Ryan shows up, and you know, biggest play of the game against Cincinnati, third and three. Defense is leaking oil. They're tired. You know, the offense and the special teams just failed them in overtime. Uh, D'Amico Ryan's called out a beautiful blitz with Kwan Williams. Of course, CJ Uzoma to pick up Williams and allowed Nick Bosa to work one-on-one against Isaiah Prince. If you, Nick Bosa has been the most double-teamed edge rusher in football this year. It, as a coordinator, it's D'Amico Ryan's job to find ways to, to get him against one-on-ones. And, and he did at the biggest spot of the game. So you have to credit D'Amico for really learning on the job this year and, and setting his players up for success. That's how the 49ers have overcome those injuries that you asked about. It feels to me like this is the sort of team 
that is potentially dangerous. But when we get into a game against a team like the Packers or a team like the Bucks, and they're going to need to drop back pass a little bit more often than they want to, and we see some of the holes that we've talked about, they eventually fall short. They, they lose to one of those teams in the playoffs. If that happens, say they lose to one of those teams in the divisional round, how would you characterize this season for the Niners if that's how it ends? If that's well, so it's interesting because they just won a game where they had to throw 41 times and were exclusively pass there toward the end on the road. So I think they have a lot more optimism and maybe people around them have more optimism that they can hang in that situation. But I absolutely understand the concern, especially given what's going on on the right side of the offensive line. And if the season does end in the divisional round after they pushed a lot of chips in for this year, um, you know, I, I would think that there, you know, there's going to be disappointment and there's going to be hunger moving to what presumably would be the, the, the Trey Lance era next year. I think, you know, uh, so much of what happens this offseason to the quarterback position will be determined by just how deep of a run the 49ers can make into January, you know? So divisional round exit sounds a, a, a little early for a team that was in the Super Bowl a couple years ago and has been talking about running it back now for two seasons straight. So uh, there obviously would be some disappointment there. But uh, again, after what they did in Cincinnati, after showing that they could be that chameleon that could win in, in, in a different way, um, it's going to be really interesting to see what they can do in January because it does seem like they're starting to show strength in multiple areas of the game at just the right time of the year. So you're talking like you're pretty confident that the Niners are going to make the postseason. According to 538, they've got a 74% chance right now to make the postseason. When you look ahead, their their upcoming schedule looks very favorable. I mean, that's got to be the thing that's most working in their favor in terms of um, being able to make a post, you know, just getting into the playoffs. They've got the, Falcons. the Vikings being a mess. That also sure, helps. Yes. Yeah. They've got <laughs> Viking uh, Falcons, Titans, Texans before a week 18 game against the Rams that could end up being really important when we're talking about playoff seedings. But what is it that makes you confident um, about their, their postseason? What, what you're going to see over the next month? Well, I mean, first to, to, to get in, they're playing two of the worst teams in football in the Falcons and the Texans. I know that the, the, the Falcons might be six and seven, but I mean, uh, they've only won one possession games and every good team they played essentially has blown them out. So, I mean, I've said it this week, if the 49ers don't beat this Falcons team at home with what's on the line for them, they don't deserve to be in the postseason. So, so I do think that, that they'll get it done against Atlanta this weekend. And I do think they'll get it done against Houston in two weeks. I don't know what's going to happen against Tennessee on a short week cross country trip and against the Rams, but the, the, the math says that if the 49ers go two and two, they have a good shot of, of being inside the tournament and probably in all likelihood they'll, they'll win three out of these last four, but we'll, we'll, we'll see if they went three out of four, they're in for sure. But um, yeah, a- anyway, the, you know, if you're talking about the 49ers, you're talking about confidence about what they might do in January. It's, it's just the, the adaptability, the way to the ability to win, in more than one way and they didn't have elijah mitchell in this game they uh against the Bengals. they obviously had already lost uh, raheem moster for the season in week one um the run game wasn't particularly efficient they had the one bigger debo run but outside of that they were well under four yards per carry um and they had to pass 41 times in a game they could only run 23 times because of the defensive looks that they were getting from the Bengals. Yet they still found a way to, to you know, get it done with Jimmy Garoppolo's arm and by spreading it around to different receivers in crunch time. So th- this is not the 2019 team anymore, right? This is a team that's going to have to be led by its offense. And at some points, it's going to have to be led by the passing offense. 
And it's going to have to get opportunistic defense on top of that uh, because the defense is just not overpowering like it was when they went to the Super Bowl in 2019. So uh, they have shown the ability to deliver that formula. Can they deliver it consistently? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, with especially given the problems on the offensive line, that could be a no. Um, but you got to give it a shot. And I think that's what the 49ers are looking at heading into January. They think that they have the potential pieces to, to put together a run with an explosive offense that hogs the ball as well and an opportunistic defense. And they just have to hope that they can put all those pieces together on Sunday when it comes time to play and do or die time. I mean, I am optimistic about them. I, I think that they're a really good team. It's just one of those things that if they get the sixth seed and let's say they have to go on the road to where would that be? The, it would be the, Arizona other, today. On the road to Arizona. Arizona. Well, that's interesting. And they're leaking oil. Yeah, they're leaking yeah, oil Yeah, that's right an now. interesting one. I mean, at that point, if they beat Arizona and then they'd have to go on the road to probably Tampa or Green Bay, I mean, like that's the big game. I absolutely think that they can play with these teams. It just feels like they're one tiny step down. So it'll be interesting. My, the other thing I wanted to ask you, kind of wrapping this up, we obviously know that the big move next offseason will be the start of the Trey Lance era and everything that comes with it. What else do you think? they need to prioritize as they kind of step into the next version of this. What else do you think is on the to-do list for them this off season? Really? No matter how the season ends for them. I think offensive line has to be, uh, they try to prioritize it this past off season because it didn't matter who was going to be quarterback in 2021. The pass protection has to be better. And they tried to with, um, you know, the Aaron, obviously they re-signed Trent Williams. That's working out well. They signed Alex Mack. That's working out well, but you don't know how much longer he has, right? He's at the tail end of his career. And then they used two draft picks on Aaron Banks, a high one, a second round one, and then they used the fifth rounder on Jalen Moore. So you don't expect as much out of that, although he's given them a little bit and fill in duty. But, I mean, they have to sit down and have an honest conversation with themselves. Where are we at with Aaron Banks? Um, you know, where are we at with Mike McGlinchey? Because he's going to be coming off a torn quad and and – especially, I think, this is even more important if Trey Lance is the guy next year. That offensive line has to be put together because, you know, one thing people don't give Jimmy Garoppolo enough credit for is the quick release and the ability to play behind consistently bad pass-protecting lines with the 49ers. Uh, I don't care if Trey Lance can, you know, run as fast as uh, the, the, the Lamar Jackson or any of these mobile quarterbacks. He, he obviously has that mobility, but Patrick Mahomes is also mobile, right? And he was completely overwhelmed when that line was so beaten up in the Super Bowl last year against the Buccaneers. And, and he had a lot more experience than Trey Lance will have next year. So I just, you know, I'm, I will die on the hill of the 49ers need to invest more heavily and more wisely in the offensive line, or it doesn't matter who's playing quarterback for them. Where would you put the odds of um, trading Jimmy Garoppolo? This offseason, it does kind of feel like there's this narrative out there that it's a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen. How would you consider it based on the conversations that you have with people in the building? And how many teams do you think are going to be interested in wanting to acquire Jimmy Garoppolo? Well, first of all, I, I think it's, again, important to emphasize that I don't think the 49ers have decided anything yet. So it's good to just put odds on it because uh, they're going to wait till they have to make a decision for this. They love their option power in these kind of situations. And I'd probably say 75% chance he gets traded right now, but there's a, that's a 25% chance. There's a significant window that they let him play out his contract. And uh, it's, you, you know, it, it, yeah, it's not an open and shut case. Like I think a lot of people are making this out to be. Um, and who, who knows what happens this January? 
in a way, their hand could be forced if he leads them very deep into January and into February. You don't just let go of a quarterback who's been playing that well, obviously. And uh, you take advantage of the fact that you have him at, at that point, it'd be a relatively affordable price for 2022. But the, the, the thing about Garoppolo's contract is that it's so flexible for the 49ers. Um, and it's, you know, obviously if he keeps on playing well, it, 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 I think it'll be affordable for a potential uh, trade suitor that they can really bide their time and they could really wait for the best offer to come in and then they can make a decision, uh, you know, based on what the price ends up being. So that's why I say 75-25 right now because I, I, there's a strong probability of this heading in one direction, but uh, there's, that, there's that 25% chance that it doesn't head that way. And I think that the 49ers are happy with that right now because more options mean more power for them. If they trade him, they save 24 24- Point two million dollars against the cap. It's a lot of money, and it gives you flexibility to to improve the roster elsewhere. And if they feel good about Trey Lance, I have to give them credit. They pulled off this tightrope walk in a way that they said they were going to, and that they wanted to. Let's compete in twenty twenty one. Let's be a real team. Let's scare some people with Jimmy Garoppolo, and then when the time comes, we move on, and we can have this kind of seamless, smooth transition. And it feels like they have a chance to do that in a very impressive way. Yeah, and you know it's a Ode to old, old 49ers history of old. That was back before the cap, though, when, when Bill Walsh uh, played the tightrope back with, with uh, Joe Montana and Steve Young. So he had the pocket passer, even though Joe Montana, I think, moved really well, for especially for quarterbacks of his time. And then he had the young buck and Steve Young coming in, who he had to you know, really teach the art of uh, passing from the pocket. And I think in, in a lot of ways, the, the development of Trey Lance is similar. I mean, this is a guy who has all the athleticism in the world but did have some pro-style experience at North Dakota State. So uh, Kyle Shanahan saw the ability to mold him into an NFL pocket passer. But again, nothing against Trey Lance. Anybody who comes out of North Dakota State with only 300 career college pass attempts is going to take a while to, to develop that into the NFL level. So it, it, it has been a tightrope back. The 49ers wanted to get the best of both worlds. They believed they could at the time of the trade. And here they are with Garoppolo. You know, look at the EPA numbers. You look at the efficiency. It's it's impressive what they're doing, but obviously they've got to continue doing it right now. And it's crunch time in December and then January brings a whole new set of challenges. So I, if anything, it's just set up, I think, riveting theater moving forward because Garoppolo is a polarizing player. Uh, you know, I don't know how he is nas- viewed nationally. It's hard for me to kind of see that because I'm viewing this through the lens of 49ers fans yelling online and everything. And God, I mean, you either love him or you hate him. If you're a 49ers fan, it seems there's no in between. And it's going to be interesting to see how this story ends or continues or, uh, you know, how this story just progresses into playoff football, because I I think that's what the 49ers signed up for when they decided to keep Jimmy Garoppolo. They anticipated being a playoff team, and they're almost at that spot now. I feel like if I could speak for the national kind of feeling about this is that Jimmy Garoppolo is just good enough to break your heart. I, I think I think that's kind of the feeling around Jimmy Garoppolo in a lot of circles. Well, that, and that's a lot. So the national circles hold him in a lot higher esteem than 49ers. A lot of 49ers <laughs> fans do. Let's put it that way. So, One last question for me before, uh, before we let you go. Um, since we haven't gotten to see Trey Lance in quite a while, we haven't seen him throw a pass, I think, since week five. What's your sense of how he's coming along kind of behind the scenes while Jimmy Garoppolo is really entrenched as the starter? Well, based on what I understand, the 49ers, are, he's coming along the way at the pace they thought he would. Because, again, there are two tracks to the Trey Lance development. There is his development as a pocket passer, like the guy that's going to have to make 
20 to 30 decisions per game from the pocket. And that is the track that will determine when Trey Lance starts, when Kyle Shanahan is comfortable enough for that to happen. So that was all expected to happen, barring a Jimmy Garoppolo injury this season. All of that track was expected to happen behind the scenes. And the 49ers have talked about how they love the fact that one week Trey Lance got to emulate Kirk Cousins on the scout team, obviously a pocket passer. And the next week he's gotten to emulate Russell Wilson, obviously a scrambling quarterback, um, you know, that has a little bit more mobility than, than, than Kirk Cousins. And, um, you know, just based on tone, based on what I've heard, you know, kind of behind the scenes from the coaching staff, they're really impressed with, with how Trey is handling that. Now, there's the second track that we expected to see more of, and that was the situational usage for Trey Lance that would actually happen on Sundays, that would actually happen on the playing field. So we thought that we would see, and Kyle Shanahan thought this too, entering the season, that we would see um, Lance actually develop in this, you know, extra way through actual game reps on Sundays. But Shanahan himself has acknowledged now that, you know, that I was a little too ambitious for him. He bit off a little too much, you know, too much, to, uh, more than he could chew from a play calling perspective. He said it was too hard to go back and forth in an efficient way. Um, initially, the plan was to use Trey in red zone situations more frequently. But the problem is the 49ers have the number one red zone offense in the league under Garoppolo this season. So, so that, you know, that was a big twist that nobody expected. And it's made it hard for the 49ers to justify interrupting play calling rhythm to bring Lance into the game. So all of the development is now happen, happening behind the scenes. And based on what I gather and what I'm gathering, it's going well. Uh, the problem is that it's hard to tell fans that, right? And so that there's a lot of restlessness, like, oh, well, if it's going so well, why isn't he playing? Well, I just explain why he isn't playing, but it's like, that's always a long explanation and it doesn't do really well on, on, on social media. So that's why the 49ers are kind of just hiding Trey Lance from the media right now. He hasn't spoken in a while, but uh, based on what I gather, the progress is happening. It's just not going to be really visible until he actually has a chance to take the field as soon as next year. Our offense is too good for the quarterback that we drafted in the top five to play is a problem a lot of teams in the NFL okay. would welcome. So, David Lombardi, thank you very, very much for the time, my friend. Very good to chat with you, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, this is great. Anytime. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. I sincerely appreciate you guys sticking around through me struggling here. We'll be back tomorrow. Hopefully, I'll be feeling a little bit better with Nate and Sheil. Until then, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. This was The Athletic Football Show.